This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Crocs. Do you wish that your shoes squeaked when you walked? Try Crocs today. Welcome to episode 85 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about cannabis. And according to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, a substance also known as weed, pot, ganja, the devil's lettuce, rainy day woman, righteous bush, sinister minister, and my personal favorite, smoochy woochie poochie. Because there's nothing cooler or more hip than saying, hey, can you pass the smoochy woochie poochie? Quitty please? But aside from these nicknames you'd be taught in earnest at your outdated high school health class, cannabis has rapidly infiltrated American society and culture. Just over 50 years ago, only 4% of American adults said they had tried marijuana. Today, that number is up to 49%, or as I like to call it, an all-time high. Cannabis is projected to be a $70 billion market by 2028, and for an industry growing this quickly, literally and figuratively, it's absolutely worth examining its links to climate change. And as it turns out, it's a pretty mixed bag. There's some good things and some ways the industry can improve. Obviously, cannabis is a really broad topic, but today we'll be focusing specifically on cannabis cultivation. We'll discuss how it could help the environment, how climate change could threaten cannabis, and where cannabis could improve its environmental and societal impacts. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out The Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, it's time for Cannabis 101. Hopefully we can make it a little more interesting than that traumatizing assembly we all had in fifth grade. The cannabis plant has been cultivated throughout the world since ancient civilizations and used for thousands of years for both medicinal and recreational purposes. Both hemp and marijuana belong to the same species, formerly known as cannabis sativa. But the defining characteristic between the two is a psychoactive component, tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. Hemp has 0.3% or less THC, meaning hemp-derived products don't contain enough THC to create the high traditionally associated with marijuana. On the other hand, marijuana can contain anywhere from 1% to 40% THC, with THC potency rising over the years. Hence why Dad smoking a doobie like the old days turns into him calling the fire department at 2am because he's paranoid thinking the house is filled with carbon monoxide. 
CBD is another compound found in cannabis. And there are actually hundreds of these compounds called cannabinoids. And they interact with receptors involved in a variety of functions like appetite, anxiety, depression, and pain sensation. Currently, the Drug Enforcement Agency categorizes cannabis as a Schedule I substance, meaning it handles cannabis as if there is no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. However, hemp was made legal to grow and sell in the United States in the 2018 Farm Bill, and 18 states, two territories, and the District of Columbia have passed legislation to allow adult recreational use of marijuana. Cultivating cannabis has actually been found to provide a host of environmental benefits, and most of those benefits come from hemp. Hemp is one of the fastest growing plants on the planet. It's like the youth travel basketball team of plants. Seriously, how does that fifth grader wear a size 13 shoe? Someone tell me. But it's true. Hemp is able to sequester 15 tons of carbon dioxide into the soil per hectare. And it crowds out weeds to such an extent that very little herbicide is needed to grow it successfully. According to the USDA, hemp has over 25,000 uses, ranging from health foods and clothing to construction materials and plastic composites. Marijuana and hemp are like Jonah Hill and Beanie Feldstein. They're siblings, but one has a single talent and gets a ridiculous amount of attention, while the other is vastly multi-talented and doesn't get nearly enough. I bet you didn't know Jonah Hill and Beanie Feldstein were siblings, did you? There's a fun fact for the day. When implemented into a crop rotation, hemp can be a huge help to farmers, as long as they remember to rotate it to the left to the left. Fun fact too, Beyonce was actually talking about crop rotations. The Rodale Institute found that soybean and wheat production increased when planted after hemp, while the number of weeds decreased. This happens for three reasons. First, hemp's rather vast and deep root system provides more stability to the soil, protecting it from soil erosion, which can be caused by excess waterfall, land movement, or excessive agricultural practices. Second, this root system aerates the subsoil, bringing in much-needed oxygen and ultimately leaving a healthier soil for the next plant. Third, and arguably most importantly, hemp has the ability to pull heavy metals like arsenic, lead, and mercury, and other toxins like PFAS out of the soil, which is absolutely amazing. Honestly, should I start planting hemp in my sink to do the dishes? Or maybe I can give it a lint roller or something, put it to work. Hemp cleans soil through a process called phytoremediation, where the roots of the hemp plant dig deep into contaminated soil and absorb harmful chemicals, as well as any beneficial nutrients that might remain. The polluting elements are removed from the soil and stored in the plant, usually in the leaves, stalk, or stems. And hemp is actually really good at this. Just listen to Peter Miles, CEO of eHemp House, explain hemp's impressive abilities. So just to explain how, why it's really good at repairing soils, it's about the only crop, it is the only crop as far as I'm aware, that they grow around Chernobyl because it's actually involved in removing the, the heavy metals from the soil around that plant. Yes, you heard that right. 
Step aside, babies having babies. It's time for plants cleaning plants. And much like stoners themselves, hemp is anti-heavy metal. Obviously, it prefers the Grateful Dead. But the fact that hemp is being used to clean up the worst nuclear disaster in history is a really big deal. And not just because Bonga Petit can now make a Chernobyl weed-infused toxic gumbo. If hemp is good enough to remediate soil in Chernobyl, just imagine what it can do in the toxic sites around the world. In the United States alone, there are over 1,300 Superfund sites in need of remediation, not to mention countless other brownfields. If hemp can help clean up toxic waste sites while also sequestering a massive amount of carbon in a very short period of time, this plant could be a really useful tool to add to the Climate Solutions Toolbox. Given these environmental benefits, it's all the more concerning to see that cannabis is actually threatened by climate change. Florida, Louisiana, and other southeastern states are bracing for increased hurricanes and the flooding that often accompanies them. Under severe circumstances, flooding and resulting power outages can wipe out an entire crop. Meanwhile, Growers in the West, including California, Oregon, and Washington, are contending with a longer and more severe wildfire season. And while you'd think blazing up would be on brand for cannabis, it's actually a major problem, as cannabis author David Bienenstock explains. But specific to cannabis, you know, it's a very, very harrowing time. Um, and in addition to being uh, perhaps losing your land and your plants to fire, uh, there's also the threat of smoke uh, damage. So it's, um, you know, global warming is real. I know there's some percentage of you out there listening who don't think it is. The only thing I can maybe say is the weed that you love <laughs> is threatened by this. And for David to use weed as a tool to get people to care about climate change is just excellent strategic thinking. They're already paranoid, so it should be a receptive audience. He's right, though. Whether you consume cannabis or just like the idea of cannabis plants pulling PFAS out of the soil, these impacts from wildfires are a huge concern. Cannabis growers in wildfire regions can't easily pick up everything and move their operations to another area, so the losses from a single cannabis farm can be huge. Sweet Creek Farm, a small family-owned cannabis farm in California, for example, lost 70% of its entire crop in a fire in 2020. The loss, estimated at $150,000, wasn't insured. And that's just one of many instances where wildfires damaged cannabis cultivation, making David's point that weed lovers ought to be concerned about climate change all the more compelling. But David brings another important point to the table. Even farms that aren't directly hit by wildfires can be indirectly affected by wildfire smoke. Essentially, wildfires hotbox the atmosphere by sending out plumes of smoke that block out direct sunlight, resulting in stunted plant growth, lower yields, and reduced cannabinoid and terpene production. Terpenes, if you're not familiar, are not only the University of Maryland mascot, but also the chemical compounds found in plants. If you didn't get that reference, neither did I. 
Olivia, who wrote the episode, is from Maryland, and apparently the University of Maryland mascot is the Terrapin, which is a relative of the turtle. Because if there's anything a school mascot should be famous for, it's being slow. But here's where this gets really interesting. I wanted to say, no wonder, insert slow NFL player here, came from the University of Maryland, so I did a Google search for Maryland Terrapins in the NFL. And if you're a football fan, just listen to this list. Stefan Diggs, DJ Moore, Darnell Savage, JC Jackson. These are some of the fastest dudes in the league. I don't know if I stumbled on some sort of turtle-based reverse psychology conspiracy, but there is something going on in Maryland, and I want answers. But climate change doesn't just affect cannabis. Cannabis affects climate change. In fact, cannabis cultivation is one of the most energy-intensive industries in America, resulting in up to $6 billion in energy costs and over a percent of the nation's total energy use. Over a percent! That's more than the electricity needed to keep all the lights on at a super target. Seriously, how bright do these places need to be? I walk in at 2pm and I'm putting on sunglasses. So why is cannabis using so much electricity? While we talked about all these cool benefits of growing cannabis outdoors, most U.S. cannabis is grown indoors, and these facilities use climate control systems and high-powered lights that require a lot of energy. One study from the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project found that energy consumption per square foot for indoor grow operations is about 10 times that of a typical office building. They also have 10 times the amount of weed of a typical office building, unless it's a building of all freelancers and pizza delivery drivers. So if indoor cannabis production is this energy intensive, why do we do it? Well, there's a few reasons. Some states have outdoor growing restrictions, it can prevent theft, it can allow growers a lot more control over the plant's properties. But the reason that sticks out most to me is that since marijuana is illegal at the federal level, it cannot be transported across state lines. In other words, even though marijuana is legal for recreational use in 18 states and another 21 legalized it for medical purposes, marijuana can't be transported from one legal state to another legal state, even if they border each other. That means each state has to grow its own marijuana, and since many states don't have the right climate for that, they're essentially forced indoors. And that's ridiculous, right? That's like forcing all professional sports indoors, or meditating with a Sound of Nature CD indoors. Oh wait, we do that too? <sighs> Never mind. But in the case of cannabis, this indoor growth leads to situations like in Colorado, where cannabis accounts for 1.7% of total statewide emissions. So we can talk about legalization, and we'll touch on it a little bit later. But regardless of your political feelings there, I don't think anyone should be thrilled at the idea that marijuana in two bordering states would be legal to grow, legal to use, but illegal to transport between them. Not only is that wildly inconsistent, but it creates a pretty major issue when it comes to carbon emissions. And seeing how fast the industry is growing, these numbers are poised to get worse. 
But if these facilities are powered by electricity, can't we just use clean energy? Well, in theory, yes. But according to UC Berkeley's Dr. Evan Mills, that isn't always feasible on a large scale. In the uh, California desert near the Arizona border, this is a proposed 2.4 million square foot, 55 acre canopy cannabis industrial park, interestingly slated to have its own bespoke 80 megawatt gas power plant. That's like a conventional large power plant to run it. And this is in the California desert, 365 days a year of sun, no cloud cover. It would take about 1,400 acres of solar cells to zero out this uh, energy and carbon footprint. Dr. Mills is saying that in order to power this proposed cannabis industrial park, you would need over 25 times the acreage in solar panels. 1,400 acres is the equivalent of almost nine Disneylands. And what's worse, you can't even ride a solar panel, much less take a picture in front of one with Mickey ears. Well, I guess you could, you just have to bring your own Mickey ears, and that sounds like a lot of work. Now, in all fairness, if you actually take into account the land required for mining, drilling, or fracking to cultivate other energy sources, solar is the energy source that requires the least land. It beats out natural gas, nuclear, coal, wind, all of them. So Dr. Mills certainly isn't saying here that solar panels are a problem. But he does put it into perspective just how energy demanding indoor cannabis cultivation is. And that's why he advocates instead of looking for a magic bullet solution, the cannabis industry ought to try reducing the amount of energy it needs. Ironic, especially if they're growing indica. Cannabis production also requires a lot of water, and not just for cottonmouth. On average, a cannabis plant is estimated to consume six gallons of water per day during the growing season, which typically ranges from June to October. And the water requirements of cannabis in a growing season can be twice as much as the water required by corn, soybeans, and wheat. Water diversion and pollution also pose problems for surrounding aquatic ecosystems. When water is diverted for cannabis, the diminished flows can be detrimental to fish such as salmon, trout, and chars. Reduced stream flow also has a strong positive correlation with increased water temperature, which can reduce these fish's growth rates, lower dissolved oxygen, increase predation risk, and increase susceptibility to disease. In fact, at California's Eel River, which was being used to irrigate cannabis farms, 24 of the river's tributaries went completely dry in the summer of 2013, and Chinook salmon have nearly vanished. In all fairness though, the Chinook salmon might have just moved for lower taxes. And like I said in the opening, while these are certainly noteworthy issues today, with the cannabis industry growing as fast as it is, it's especially important to examine these issues now so they don't become even bigger problems. On to the economic side of things, cannabis is basically pure gold, which I'm assuming is also the name of a strain. Last year, annual legal cannabis sales reached $26.5 billion, and they're expected to reach $32 billion in 2022. And if we look globally, the total cannabis market, regulated and illicit, is estimated to be $344 billion. That's like four eighths, bro. On top of that, 
Predictions show the marijuana industry will employ 545,000 to 600,000 people by 2025, with many positions in the legal cannabis industry already paying more than the median U.S. salary. Also, between April 2017 and April 2021, property values increased by over $17,000 in states where recreational marijuana is legal. And according to one graph, late-night Taco Bell Crunchwrap Supreme orders in legal states also skyrocketed. Weird. But unfortunately, these economic gains aren't being felt equally. The cost of opening a cannabis dispensary can range from $150,000 to $2 million. And on the cultivation side, according to Kyle Kazan, CEO of the Glasshouse Group, it costs over $20 million cash to get the first 500,000 square feet on his two farms. That sort of entry point requires not just wealth, but connections with investors and the education or experience to run a business of that magnitude. And due to the racial wealth gap and many other inequalities, these barriers to entry can disproportionately affect black entrepreneurs. In fact, a 2017 Marijuana Business Daily survey found 81% of cannabis business owners in the U.S. were white and 4.3% were black. And that is particularly frustrating with cannabis, because if we go back through even recent history, we've seen black Americans arrested far more often for nonviolent drug offenses than white Americans. In fact, even from 2010 to 2018, the American Civil Liberties Union found black Americans use marijuana at a similar rate as white Americans, but are 3.6 times more likely to be arrested for it. That's why, according to cannabis entrepreneur Belicia Royster, as the industry grows and becomes increasingly legal, it's all the more frustrating that black Americans are struggling to be a part of it. This industry is built on our backs once again. We were the ones arrested for it. We were the ones distributing it. We were the ones that created mastermind enterprises <laughs> illegally, or the legacy industry is because of us. The current clientele is because of the customer base that we built in the streets across this country. Obviously, this is a much larger conversation that would get into the war on drugs, policing, the prison industrial complex, and a long list of other things that I wish we had time for today. But since we're talking about cannabis cultivation specifically today, this piece of the conversation felt really relevant and important. Belicia expresses that cannabis is an industry that black Americans helped grow, and they were punished disproportionately as a result. And now that the law of the land is moving in a different direction and people get rewarded with lots of money for being in the cannabis game, black Americans are disproportionately left out. I get that there's a lot that goes into all that, but setting aside feelings about legalization, just looking at this clip from Belicia, it is so clear how ridiculous it is for a group of people to be punished then and left out of the benefits now. So as the industry continues growing in size, in addition to worrying about the climate and water impacts we discussed earlier, it's worth thinking about the social impact too. So where do we go from here? The solutions landscape for cannabis, as I'm sure you know, gets into some more controversial politics, so I don't expect people to walk away from this episode agreeing with every idea we discuss. 
As long as we agree Smoochie Woochie Poochie is a better name, I'll be satisfied. But I'm sure there's room for more common ground here, as there is with everything. And I hope some of the information we discussed today, even if it doesn't affect your opinions on cannabis itself, could affect how you might feel about policy. I guess one idea some people advocate is to just make it all illegal again. In theory, that would eliminate the energy and water issues and make the threats of climate change a moot point. However, that very quickly runs into problems, including all the social injustices we saw as a result of that policy through history to present day, the fact that there are lots of medical uses of cannabis, the fact that there is a booming multi-billion dollar industry employing hundreds of thousands of people, the fact that outdoor cannabis plants sequester carbon and remediate soil, and the fact that in all likelihood, people will continue to use cannabis anyway, as they have throughout history. Illegal cannabis production is also likely to be more unsustainable, because it frequently involves on-site diesel generators and the use and disposal of toxic substances. Look, I get why people may hold that viewpoint, especially when I lived in Boston and half the city smelled like a skunk all the time, but I think it's fair to say there's a ridiculous number of issues that come up with an all-out ban, many of which are ones we're currently trying to rectify. So if we set that aside, and assume cannabis will still exist and still grow in popularity, what can we do? Of course, we could go all the way to the opposite side and legalize it, dude. I know, that again is more complicated than the scope of this episode. I doubt anyone at weed protests is there because of the industry's carbon emissions. If you are, shoot me a message. Let's be best friends. But think about if it were federally legal. You don't have this state lines issue anymore, which means cannabis could actually be grown outside more often and transported between states. As a result, we'd see the environmental benefits of sequestering carbon and remediating soil. This could actually be a really economically attractive way to remediate brownfields and Superfund sites in America. We could also do our best to incentivize this agriculture in states that have more water availability, so California wouldn't have to feel the stress of finding enough water to fuel their cannabis industry. They could use that water for other things, like water gun fights or flooding that giant room in Inception. Legalization could also have great economic benefits, by allowing the government to tax it, if you like, by ending expensive and ongoing operations to eradicate it, and by keeping millions of otherwise innocent and nonviolent people out of already overburdened federal and state prisons. It could also help low-income and minority entrepreneurs get access to loans and grants to support their endeavors, helping on the equity side. So it's not a magic fix but it does make it a lot easier to chip away at all the issues we covered today. Of course, there are drawbacks too, one being that it could put small business owners at risk. Most agriculture in the U.S. is run by a small number of large corporations, and increased competition from big companies that already have a 50-state presence could quickly threaten small local businesses. That, or they'd be forced to come up with some quirky homegrown concept for a dispensary. Like Cannabis Cat Cafe, where you're stoned and they're on catnip. Or an artisanal market, where you have to pick it yourself and they sell $200 hoodies. On top of that, a cannabis farmer in an oversaturated state could suddenly ship their product anywhere, which would likely undercut the local grower's prices. Competition isn't a bad thing. 
but it can quickly devolve into unfair competition, and at its worst form, monopolies and oligopolies. So it may be worth taking lessons from other agricultural commodities to ensure if cannabis were federally legalized, it doesn't become an economic mess. But you can also go in between. Obviously, it could remain a state-by-state -state thing as it is now. It could be legalized for specific purposes at the federal level. It could be decriminalized. Or some of the issues we talked about today could just be addressed on their own if we can't all agree on a universal policy. That's an option, too. For example, we can think about where and how cannabis is grown. According to Dr. Amanda Riemann, secretary of the International Cannabis Farmers Association, just making the step toward outdoor growth could bring a lot of benefits. So I want to support that the future of sustainable cannabis production is sun-grown. So why? Well, sun is free. It's there. It's always there. Um, the full spectrum of the sun actually maximizes cannabinoid and terpenoid development. So the flavors, the smells, the cannabinoids under the full spectrum of the sun actually get to realize their greatest potential. The smells reach their full potential? Are you saying what I think you're saying? Oh, no. But Dr. Riemann's point here is really intriguing. Obviously, I broke down earlier why outdoor growth can help the environment, reduce carbon emissions, and save on the electric bill. And while it does require a lot of water, there are ways to make that more sustainable. But through her experience, Dr. Riemann points out something completely different. Outdoor cultivation can produce a better product. Terpenoids, for example, are responsible for the unique aromas and flavor profiles of specific strains of marijuana. And according to a survey Dr. Riemann did, aroma is the most important factor when choosing a product. So not only can outdoor growers help the environment and save money, but they can make their product more attractive to buyers. And yet only six states allow outdoor cultivation of cannabis, and even in states like California that do allow it, only 13 localities permit outdoor growing. Of course, there are issues with outdoor cultivation too. Some people may be uncomfortable having it so visible to the public, others may have the opposite reaction and try to steal it, and of course, outdoor weather conditions are a lot less predictable than inside a greenhouse, unless you've emitted so much carbon in your greenhouse that now your greenhouse has climate change, in which case you should probably just shut it all down and take up knitting or something. But in all seriousness, for outdoor farms, extreme weather events could potentially destroy an entire crop, and with climate change, a region once well-suited for outdoor cultivation could become incompatible for optimal growth. That said, seeing an expert like Dr. Riemann advocate so strongly for outdoor cultivation from a quality perspective is certainly a big point in its favor. I'm sure there's a lot running through your head right now when I discuss a plant that both helps and hurts the environment, a market that is growing so fast but creating barriers for many entrepreneurs, and an industry that both accelerates and is threatened by climate change. And yet despite these contradictions, there is absolutely a path forward. 
like edibles. There are solutions that come in all shapes and sizes. And while I know it's a controversial topic, if we stick to the non-political facts that we discussed today and look for common ground, we could find major ways to cut greenhouse gas emissions, remediate hazardous waste sites, help the economy, and eradicate any number of social inequalities. And if we can't get behind that, then I hope we can at least get behind officially changing the name of cannabis to Smoochie Woochie Poochie. Do you love the feeling of getting your shoes stuck in an escalator? Then Crocs are for you. Crocs contribute to environmental sustainability with their low CO2 footprint. But more importantly, they help you achieve that iconic dude bro look for the low, low price of $49.99 plus tax. Righteous. Crocs. Try wearing them with socks. Come on, it'll look so cool. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Brandy Phipps, Research Assistant Professor of Food, Nutrition, and Health at Central State University. Dr. Phipps, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First off, tell us a little bit about your background and research interests. Sure. I kind of took a little bit of a roundabout way uh, in academics. I got my bachelor's uh, of science degree from nutrition sciences and pre-medical sciences from the University of Florida. And then I went to Virginia Tech, where I got a master's degree in human nutrition, followed by a PhD in biomedical sciences uh, with a focus on nutrition. I joined a tenure track position, which is your typical faculty position at a university for a few years, and then decided that I wanted to leave academics and pursue other things. During that time, which was over a decade, um, I ended up doing a lot of grassroots um, and board work with nonprofits that were focusing on food access, food justice, health and nutrition advocacy. And then I rejoined academics and research here in 2019 when I accepted the position at Central State, which is Ohio's only public historically black college and university and an 1890 land grant, which means we do research that focuses on agriculture and community and economic development, et cetera, especially related to underserved minorities. What's cool is I really think that that work that I did during my time away from academics has really influenced a lot of how I approach my current work now that I've returned to academics and research. The episode's about cannabis, but I'm going to try to cover as much of your work as I can because it's also interesting. One project of yours I find really cool is about how hemp could be a source of sustainable feed for aquaculture. Do you want to tell us a bit about that research? Sure. So the project that you're referring to is a recently funded project, a $10 million funded project through the United States Department of Agriculture's National Institute food and agriculture. We call it sushi, which means sustainable use of a safe hemp ingredient. And like you mentioned, a large part of this is looking at how hemp, specifically hemp grain, can be used to replace maybe some or all of one of the most expensive and one of the most environmentally unsustainable ingredients in fish feed, which is fish oil and fish meal, which typically is being caught from wild caught fishes in the ocean. 
And so we're doing a lot with that project. But like you said, a big part of it is looking at how hemp may play a role in both addressing issues of food and nutrition access, as well as agricultural systems that may have less negative impact on our changing climate. The project is also designed to create a lot of cross-cultural learning, partnering with other land-grant institutions, finding opportunities for Native American and African-American graduates in agriculture. Why has this piece of the project been important to you and in what ways has it improved the research? So like I mentioned before, during my time away from academics, I did a lot of work with local regional organizations that were involved in nutrition and health equity, justice, advocacy. And certainly, like I said, that's really informed my work as I've returned to academics. So kind of with that in mind, I knew that the work that I wanted to do would really be at that intersection of climate change, nutrition and health equity, and food systems food production. And so when we look at agriculture and agriculture in STEM, and so in particular things like water resources management, environmental engineering, agriculture education, agriculture business, we don't see a lot of diversity currently in those fields. And so being at an HBCU where we have a large population of minority students and then partnering with a tribal college, so we're partnered with College of Menominee Nation up in Wisconsin, We knew that we wanted to, as part of our project, to make sure that we were increasing diversity in the workforce through providing scholarships and workforce training. Part of why the project intrigued me as well is I had no idea how many uses there are for hemp or cannabis as a whole, in addition to smoking and vaping. It can be used for clothes, shoes, paper, food, bioplastics, obviously feed for aquaculture. Why do you think we don't talk about these other uses as much? So real quickly, before I get to answer that question, I think it's really important to differentiate. We're kind of saying hemp and cannabis interchangeably. And while hemp is the cannabis plant, I think it's really important to differentiate the legal distinction that is often used. And so most people, when they say cannabis, we're talking about cannabis sativa, there's some other strains, but cannabis sativa that is grown for, at least in part, for the intoxicating compound right? Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol or THC as we think of, right? Legally hemp, while botanically that same cannabis sativa plant differs in its legal definition and that nothing that is grown as industrial hemp for any of the things that industrial hemp can be grown for, which I'll get back to in a second, it has to have less than 0.3% Delta 9 THC. And there are very strict laws in place in every hemp program in the country related to that and some pretty strict rules for what has to happen to those crops if they go over that 0.3% Delta 9 THC. Here at Central State University, we only have a license to research hemp or industrial hemp, not to research or utilize what we call high THC cannabis, or some people still refer to it as marijuana or hot cannabis. All of those are uses for that anything higher than 0.3%. THC. But then to your question, why don't we think about those other uses? I think it has a lot to do with the socio-political history, right, of how cannabis or hemp left the scene in the United States and across the globe, and then also when and why it re-entered the scene in 2014 and then finally 2018 of talking hemp in the farm bill. And so, you know, 
cannabis was used for food, medicine, and fiber for thousands and thousands of years. We see it referred to in ancient texts in Syria, Egypt, Persia, way back to 3000 BC in China. And so what happened? Well, if we look at the history, there were a lot of social and political pressures, much similar to what we see today that are related to racism and xenophobia and a misunderstanding of what the plan is and who was using it. But I think the socio-political issues that are related to why cannabis was made illegal still exist today when we look at the disinformation um, and the way that things are lobbied for or against even now. And so when when hemp really came on the scene, it came on the scene after there were states that were already legalizing the high THC cannabis. And so I think that maybe, and again, I haven't done any research into you know what the perception was for people or why farmers you know did made the choices that they made. But right when CBD started to be legal to be sold in different states with the most recent farm bill, I'm guessing that people chose metabolite hemp because that's what they kind of knew the most about because there were other THC containing cannabis products already on the market. And then at the beginning, they could be sold for a really good profit margin. Now that that market got pretty saturated pretty quickly, I think people are now maybe open to hearing about some other ways to diversify that crop, including using it for fiber and grain. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting discussion because obviously you're more familiar with the outdoor hemp growing and that at least as it stands right now, doesn't seem to have the same level of impact, but these indoor facilities, they're really relying on electricity. And in theory, that could be clean energy. It isn't quite yet, but when you try to compare the two and you think about, oh, should we be shifting all this outdoors? I think it's a really interesting discussion. So I'm curious what kinds of strides are being made in terms of making outdoor hemp growing sustainable? And do you think that even if today the indoor growing is a big issue, do you see that changing in the future? I love that you're thinking along these lines. Anytime that you change how outdoor acres are utilized, right, for different crops, it's going to impact a whole lot of different aspects related to the environment, whether that's water use, whether that's how the flora and fauna in a particular area might change, right? Because of different pollinators that do better with different types of crops, et cetera. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because with the Sushi Project, right? One of my team members, his name is Dr. Song Yoon. He's at Mississippi State University. I call him an environmental economist. That's not his actual title, but it's what makes sense to me. So he does something that's called agro-ecosystems valuation, right? Big long word. Basically what that means is he does that work that whereas an economist that deals with money is looking at, okay, if we change how we grow things, how is that going to affect producer dollars, consumer dollars, et cetera? He does the same, but by attaching kind of a dollar or value amount to certain things, again, flora, fauna, water use, water contamination, soil degradation, right, et cetera. And so he is able to, as we estimate if hemp can be used as a feed for aquaculture, how acreage will change, right, as more people start potentially growing it for grain in this country, what is that going to do to the environment? And so I think it is really, really important for anybody that is doing work 
with any crop, whether it's for food, for textiles, cannabis, for metabolite use, whether on the high THC side or the industrial hemp side, I think that we can't do it responsibly if we're not thinking about how we're affecting multiple intersecting things like climate change and environmental health. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I actually think this made me think about food justice a little bit too, which we'll get to more. But part of the reason why these indoor facilities are so popular is that technically to transport cannabis across state lines is drug trafficking, even between two legal states. So every state has to grow their own. And a lot of states aren't in the right climate to do that. It made me think of food justice because obviously there's a lot of local food movement, local growing, but at least in terms of climate, that's not always the right approach. Sometimes you want to be growing food where it's supposed to be grown and transport it. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. If you feel like the state lines issue is largely why the indoor growth has been driven, or if there's some other reason related to efficiency or what have you. It'll be interesting to see as more and more states are pushing for the federal laws to change related to high THC cannabis and even related to industrial hemp, et cetera, what we see happen there, right? Will we see a decrease in those indoor facilities because anybody can grow it anywhere. And so we'll have more growing in the place where it's growing and the transport. Again, I think it would be important if and when that happens that we say, okay, well, we know we have these kinds of emissions when things are grown in indoor facilities. We have these issues related to emissions and other things, right? Fossil fuel use, et cetera, when we grow in one place and transport it to another. So I think there's a lot of variables that are going to have to be sort of discussed and calculated to determine what is the ideal. And I think the way that you kind of mentioned it related to the local foods movement is really interesting because, you know, we think about California, for example, that's the place where so much of American grown produce, almonds, avocados, et cetera, are grown. And yet what's happening, what are the other environmental impacts that happen in order to make that possible? They have the right climate, but what had to happen to get water? Yeah. And I think the work you're doing on the outdoor side is really, really useful for this because obviously it carries a lot of implications, whichever way the industry leans. You've also studied some of the health impacts of cannabis, which I wanted to ask you about. What did your research there find? And do you feel there are some misconceptions around this topic? I'm going to answer the second question first. Um, Yes, I do think that there's a lot of misconceptions about the use of cannabis. And I think it's on all sides that we find misconceptions. I think it can be a very polarized discussion with people coming at it from the cannabis is a miracle plant. It can do anything and everything. It's the only plant that we need sort of, you know, side of things. And then clearly we have the polar opposite of that where people are coming in and saying, Cannabis is the devil's weed. And I think we just need to be really systematic in our approach. And we need to try to stop being so polarized in the way that we approach this so that we can really get information that's solid and that's going to be helpful for everybody. I also want to talk a little bit about your work with food justice. We mentioned it a little bit, but I'm curious, are there any connections that you find between your hemp work and your food justice work. And of course, also, if you can just give us a little overview of what you're doing with food justice. 
Sure. And so, again, kind of going back to, I think, anything, any kind of research, right, related to climate change, nutrition, health, food and food systems, we have to intersect those in order to make sure that we are doing the things that we need to do so that our population is really getting what we need to get without destroying the things around us, right? And so, I think climate change, environmental health, food justice are all always interwoven. When you look, if you were to layer maps on top of each other of food deserts, or what I even want to call nutrient deserts, because sometimes there's lots of calories. So people are like, oh, well, they're fine. They have enough calories that they need. Well, if those calories are not nutrient dense, we're, we're missing the boat here, right? So if you were to layer maps about nutrient density to environmental health issues, pollution, right? Pockets of heat issues, right? In the summer, all of that. What do you find? Redlining, all of those. If you layer all of those things that have sociopolitical injustices involved in them, you often find there's, it's just an overlap, seeing the same areas across the board. So yeah, my work needs to have a food justice angle to it. Dr. Phipps, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me and keep up the great work. This wraps up episode 85 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from Facing Future, Periodic Effects Cannabis Podcast, Berkeley Cannabis Research Center, AJ Plus, and UC Botanical Garden. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Next week.